0: Speaking Basketball Podcast, my name is Ben. Welcome back. Nate, did I do that right? (laughs) Today, did I do it?
1: Did I do it right on Monday? That's really I think
0: you did. You did. Uh, Nate and I are doing uh, each other's podcast this week. You can check out uh, our episode of dunked on which is it's in intermission right now. We're talking about the uh, the greatest teams of the decade for the 2010s. Yeah,
1: that was a a really fun show to do. And so much fun that we couldn't complete it in an hour and a half. No. So hopefully, maybe next week I, I can nail you down here right now. Actually, maybe I, maybe I, if we get everyone thinking that it's going to happen next week, then maybe I can uh, speak it into existence. You're
0: gonna you're gonna pull that on me right here. Um, we will figure out when we're going to come back and do that. I needed the intermission to regather my thoughts, but today something equally as special—the next installment of the Great Debate series. And I asked Nate, without realizing that all these words rhymed, Nate, great debate, um, which is what I'm titling this podcast in my little notes here.
1: Yeah. Uh, F- five-year-old Nate would have been very <laughs> angry at you for making fun of me.
0: <laughs> um, well, it's a, it's a fanatic
1: observation. So, somehow, <laughs> I was such an insecure child that when just adults or whatever would call me Nate the Great, I would just like get really annoyed because I was convinced that they were just being sarcastic. Were you, were you always tall? For my age, yeah. I, okay. Although I did, I was like one of the taller kids, and then between eighth grade and sophomore year, I went from five five to six five. Wow! And, uh, and I gained about five pounds during that period too. <laughs>
0: what, but were you were you comfortable with that, or was it did it become like a self conscious? Let's go right to the therapy session. Let's start the pod that yeah, way. No,
1: I, I I definitely liked being tall. That was one thing that I at least uh, was able to. Glean some modicum of self-esteem from.
0: Okay, you seem very comfortable with it now. For those who don't know, Nate is a Nate is a good six-six, and that's no inflated NBA height with shoes either. Um, today, speaking of tall people in the NBA, the the great debate discussion. So we're
1: not we're not starting with Barkley. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think I actually think we should start with Barkley. We're going to talk okay. about power forwards. Um, the three I wanted to stack up and wanted Nate to come in here and and give his opinions on as well as we go through. Charles Barkley, Karl Malone, Dirk Nowitzki, really quickly running down the same concept as the first installment of this. The purpose here is to really hit the big ideas worth discussing about these players, worth knowing about these players. That means key points to understand at different arcs in their careers, numerical trends for them as individuals, um, stylistic changes, what happened with their teams, Things of that nature, and of course, your mileage is going to vary on conclusions. But our goal here is to really hit all these key points uh, that I think are worth knowing. Um, On my side, I always have an emphasis on you know championships, championship equity. You know, meaning how much does a player help good teams become great? How much does a good player help teams win titles? But of course, you can can dovetail your own criteria in. As you see fit nate do you kind of align on that criteria when you when you stack up players do you uh include other things as well
1: yeah i think a lot of it is championship equity i think you just have to talk about what it is right there is value certainly in bringing a team to the playoffs that otherwise uh, would not get there but uh, your work in particular in in the top 40 series i think has uh, affected my thinking a lot as far as what is really important and How players can help teams win championships, how they can scale the idea that, hey, you're probably going to have some other good players on your team if you're going to win a championship, and how do you play well with others is a a massively important aspect.
0: Yeah, that's the key one. Um, And just so people know, years ago, I did some research on sort of looking at how different players impacted different qualities of teams, and I myself was completely taken aback. By what ended up really becoming the idea of like valuing ceiling razors more than floor razors, uh, I had it inverted in my mind at the time. You know, I was I was driving the uh, the Bernard King bandwagon, if you will, back in the day. Um,
1: yeah, it's uh, or, or Adrian Dantley uh, is another one of those guys. But yeah, I think it's it's kind of almost like, hey, we're gonna reverse engineer a championship team. We're gonna see what championship teams are. And then you have to say, okay, well, all of these teams have these types of players. So if you're going to win a championship, you probably should have some of those types of players. Right, right, and right. and if you are the guy who's going to have the ball in his hands, obviously that's the scoring points is what we've always focused on in basketball. That's a, the sexy thing since time immemorial. Uh, but that's not necessarily going to win you a championship to just have guys who are going to score points if they're not at the absolute highest level of guys so then you start to say well who's more valuable the really good second banana or the mediocre first banana it's such an interesting question but all three of these guys we're going to talk about are pretty clear first bananas yeah
0: yeah um just a reminder that like two key principles of comparison I always want to carry through in every installment of this series the first one is never judge a player in his worst or best situation So as we go through these guys, we'll talk about, maybe this made him look good, this made him look bad, whatever. Uh, And, you know, things like what stats will change or look better or worse in those situations are relevant. And then, of course, the second one, my favorite probably, is comparing the player to himself. How does he change from year to year? What kind of strengths and weaknesses emerged as the years went on? Um, So without further ado, are you ready? Indeed. Let's start with let's go. Let's hop on our little time machine. Mine's a DeLorean. Um, let's go back to 1985. Charles Barkley comes into the league. Let's start with him. So for me, zooming in on Barkley, the the emphasis throughout this series is really on when players are at their best. Those those prime years, the heart of those years. Barkley to me, 88, 89 is when he kind of ramps up in that period through Philadelphia to Phoenix. So you know, if I start with the 76ers teams, Moses Malone left in 1987, Bobby Jones was gone, uh, was Irving's final year that year. And I think Barkley's passing started to come along a little bit more as he was given, you know, a larger role in the offense. Um, At that point in time, turnovers, I always felt were a huge issue for him. Those like, you know, clear out isolation, isolation offenses that the 76ers used to run, that illegal D style of offense, Nate, if you remember, if you can remember all the way back. Yeah. And I I just thought Philadelphia did that almost more than anyone with Barkley. He had the strength and power to back people in, but wasn't a great passer at that point in time. And I think one of the trade-offs was some turnovers, both with passing and some of the sort of huge moves he would make to the bucket. Um, That gets us right to about 1989 and a bunch of his metrics jump up. And I think that's really where his prime years start. By the way, for Charles Barkley, we do have plus minus data. We don't have Yeah. we don't have play by play data, but the 76ers had an incredible one of the one of the all-time great statisticians named Harvey Pollack who worked with them since like the 60s and he would actually keep track of plus minus data and so we do have some ability to estimate Barkley's sort of like on-off impact style metrics and they, they peak up, uh, in 1989 and 1990 around plus four per game in my augmented plus minus metric. That's, that's one of those hybrid hybrid metrics. That's kind of similar, the same vein as Jacob Goldstein's PIPM. If you're familiar with that, Barkley's turnovers start to come down in 1989 and Philly's offenses get really good. Their offensive rating is five points better than league average at that period. So let me pause there. Um, Nate, you, would you agree, in your recollection, that that's sort of the meaningful Barkley period to discuss? That right around 1989 for me is where he's going to hit a multi-year stretch here. That that you know this is the guy we should discuss as prime Charles Barkley.
1: Yeah, I think so because when he first came in, he's playing with a team that was one year removed from a championship. He's got Dr. J, Moses Malone. Uh, then those guys depart. Their team really isn't that good. He makes the all-star team for a couple of years, but it's really 89, 90, 91 that he's really driving a team with not much else on it. I mean, who are your other good players on that team? Hersey Hawkins, maybe, you know, Johnny Johnny Dawkins Dawkins, was maybe an, an average point guard, but then he tears his ACL and was never the same. So he's really driving. You mentioned the offense. I mean, you know, Hawkins, I think, was a very solid shooting guard for the time could space the floor, maybe an underrated player historically. But it's basically him and Hersey and, you know, Mike Jaminski is the center. Uh, kind of a, so kind I, of I a think... stretch.
0: Mike Mike Jaminski was kind yeah. of like an early version stretch big man playing, you know, outside the lane hitting jumpers. But Mike Jaminski or Dave Corzine? <laughs> yeah,
1: oh. oh, now we're getting there. Okay, keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to sidetrack us. Uh, but, yeah, so... He, you wouldn't say that he's really like a floor raiser because he's so efficient. He's leading the league in true shooting for four straight years. Not as high of a usage as your modern superstar would be to get today. Eighty nine ninety, only twenty four percent usage. I know you have better metrics for it for that, but yeah, I think that squares up. But he's such an extreme player, and I think that's the thing that really, um. Sometimes those players maybe don't fit in that well with championship teams, but he's near in the league lead in offensive rebounding. These free throw rates are absolutely insane. I mean, higher than basically any big star today. Generally, of course, it's a higher free throw environment at that time. Um, and just, I mean, the thing that people probably don't remember, maybe somebody, some of our listeners saw him in – with the Rockets maybe the end of his Phoenix career of just what a singular athletic force yes. he was where he just he didn't really have any moves he was 6-4 and he could but he weighed like 260 and he could just like shoulder you out of the way and go up and dunk on you and get every offensive rebound and he just it was a monster. It, it it was really, there'd never been anything like him at that time, and I don't know if there's ever been anything like him since uh, as an athlete.
0: Yeah, he he may very well be one of those unique players, certainly stylistically. I, I think for young viewers, I almost want to connect him to Zion, right, in that he was so yep. big, so explosive. He had a really long wingspan. Like, he played way bigger than whatever he was listed at, 6'5 or 6'6 or something like that. Um, but not in every situation, right? It wasn't like he could clog up the paint or block a lot of shots, or it was just the combination of girth, thickness, explosion, long arms. Um, in 1988, he averaged 15 free throw attempts per 100, to your point. Those are like, that's like peak Shaquille O'Neal levels, including hack shack So, yeah. you know, we're talking about a guy who could generate a tremendous amount of sort of friction just by leaning into stuff around the basket. That, that does raise another question for me, though, which is he's one of the great offensive rebounders ever. And he would certainly get a lot cleaning up misses in the lane, fighting for position. Remember, this was back in the day where paints were more clogged, more guys were in the paint, and he would get in there and generate offense that way. And so to your point about usage, this has always been something that's fascinated me. Barkley's efficiency is through the roof, but how much volume could we actually expect him to generate as an isolation score?
1: Yeah, because and I think a lot of it, he you know, he starts shooting three pointers later in his career, but his skill level as a post up player is not that high. He doesn't really have like a jump hook game. He doesn't really have much of a left hand. He's really reliant on just backing in the lane and overpowering and getting his shoulder in and going up for power layups. So that is a good question of how much could he really have done more. His career high usage was uh, 29%. That I think was the year that Dawkins tore his ACL. And, you know, even in his MVP year, 27%, that clearly was the, the best year that first year in Phoenix. So uh, you're right. I mean, I, unless he was just going to take threes that he couldn't make, you know, he's maybe the worst volume three-point shooter of all time. I'm not sure how much more he could have handled because clearly these were teams where he's so efficient and they got nobody else. If he could have handled more and even if the efficiency went down, he probably would have done it, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, he was never really a guy who could get his scoring rate, and this is connected directly to the usage metric you're citing. He wasn't going to be a 30-point-per-game guy. He was always 24, 25 points per 75 with this super high efficiency, which is a rung-down from the other stars and to the point about ramping it up when when you go back and you look at the film you say oh god he's getting a lot of extra stuff from offensive rebounding as well so you know like what is the real capacity what is the real ceiling of this isolation scoring um let me walk through really quickly how I see the improvement over these years getting to that Phoenix season that you just referenced and you can jump in anytime tell me if you disagree or if you want to add something.
1: Uh, I mean, I I will say this, like his just assist rates as he gets later into his career, if you're thinking of him as a power forward, especially, I know he played small forward for a couple of those Philly years, but it's like really high, just raw assist totals for that type of player in that era.
0: So that was the first thing I was going to say is he, to me, this period is when his passing starts to evolve. He always had little flashes of it in the eighties, but between the turnovers, the teams, the roles, it was never quite there. And then 91 in Philadelphia, he misses uh, 15 games with injury. It's not a, you know, the 90 season is sort of like a pinnacle season. He's in the MVP race. The team is way better. 91, there's some struggles. Starts shooting way more threes. This is when the the early days of the Antoine Walker syndrome are setting in for Charles Barkley here. Um, But the passing does start to expand. And when you get to Phoenix in 93, I thought that was his best passing year. Um, His passing numbers in my metrics are at his peak there. His passer rating is about a five and a half, which is above average to your point for a power forward. You can roughly think of that as a one to 10 scale. So in the playoffs as well, you know, five to six, kind of an above-average passer, learning how to pass out of the post. Well,
1: can I interrupt you? Yeah, for a please. Second? So that's why is you're that here. Ninety-three Phoenix team. You said never judge a player in their best situation. Is that his best situation? Ooh. So. Offensively, I think it is. Defensively, probably not. But offensively, I think it's it's pretty close for that era. The amount of spacing, right, right. And, and, and I mean, they had been a great offense before they got him.
0: Yes. And they had Hornacek and traded him for for Jeff Hornacek. Let's just really quickly lay out that team was Dan Marley was next to him. Kevin Johnson was the point guard. Uh, They had a flash in the pan who I loved who had a great year in 93 named Richard Dumas.
1: Oh yeah. That that dude was dunking on
0: people. Yeah. He was uh, spectacular. And then some kind of rotating cabal at center with Oliver Miller when he was playing well and was in shape enough to play. Um, would they that Joe Klein on that team at center? Mark, Mark West? West, yeah. Mark
1: West was like the starting center on the Suns for like ten years, yeah. <laughs> and he would play like fifteen minutes a game.
0: Yeah, um, he
1: never did anything. There's, I mean, there's so many big guys back in the day who just were there because they're big. I mean, and I think they felt that you needed that guy just to guard the other team's center on post ups, but they just did absolutely nothing other than that.
0: Yeah, and so. Miller wasn't a guy who would live in the post. They had Miller out of the key a lot, especially when Barkley operated mid post, low post, and then between Dan Marley spotting up, Kevin Johnson. To your point, there was a lot of space, and I I'm, I was wondering when you know preparing for this, what a better situation would be for him offensively. What would it look like?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it, for the era, I mean they also had Danny Age coming off the bench on that team. So And he would close a lot of games for them as well, the Ainge and Marley together. I mean, that's way more shooting than basically any team had at that point. You got Kevin Johnson uh, attacking as well. I mean, Barkley, you know, they didn't really run pick and roll back then, right? I mean, that's not something that he did. It would have been interesting to see what he was like because he did have a a pretty good, like, one-foot jump as well, uh, which is rare for a guy that size. They
0: did a little um, because KJ was a pick and roll operator, and I definitely in the 93 playoffs remember them running a little bit he would also pop as well from my recollection but but to your point it wasn't like it wasn't an indelible it wasn't a game changer it wasn't something that Barkley weaponized as a role man
1: yeah and I mean I think you know today it's interesting to think of what he would be like today where today he would probably be handling the ball out top you'd have guards set screens for him to try and get the switch or they would be able to pop out to three I mean you'd kind of be using him more in the you know, like a early career Blake Griffin type of guy, mm. uh, you know, that's another interesting comparison. And all We've been making all these comparisons obviously with Zion when you think about it. Uh, and so that's another one. Hopefully we'll get to see Zion soon, but um, should, you were talking about his evolution. Sorry, I interrupted you, but I, I thought it was interesting to say, Hey, you know, he did win the MVP, you know, regular season might've had the most value that year. Uh, but that's offensively, that's about as good of a situation as it gets, I think. Well,
0: it's a perfect segue to what I was going to say about the 93 team, which is that you had a period of time where Kevin Johnson was out. And the offense during that stretch was still very good. They were like five points better than league average without Kevin Johnson. They still played like a 58-win 58, 58 team without Kevin Johnson. And that got me thinking a little bit more about, Barkley as a, as a floor raiser versus ceiling raiser. It's almost like if you can put him at that point in time with a decent enough offensive crew, you have the spacing. Uh, KJ certainly drove a huge amount of offense for them as well. But in, in this case, he was out injured. And yet you still had these results. And so when, when KJ came back, they were like a plus seven offense, something like that, seven points better than league average. So Barkley, in the right circumstance... I think, in a way, gives you, you know, we still use the term floor raising, at least I do, but yeah. it's become it's become perverted a little bit in the sense that, you know, LeBron is floor raising, but he's getting your offense to such a height. James Harden is floor raising, but he's getting your offense to such a height. Did Barkley, was was that his ideal situation as a player, in other words? That's that's where I'm going with this thought.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's pretty close to it, especially for the era. Um, should we talk about how he couldn't guard anybody? That was, yeah, you, you take it away. I was going to start there. (laughs) So worth noting, first of all, that back then, like, you know, pick and roll defense among bigs wasn't really that big of a deal. I don't think he would have been particularly great at it. Uh, as a post-up defender, I think he was fine. You know, that's something that you had to do. Uh, obviously defensive rebounding was a huge, much bigger aspect of defense back then when uh, other teams were really trying to hit the offensive glass and offensive rebounding rates were as much as 10% higher uh, than today. So he, he was okay there. Um He, especially early in his career, he could get up for some spectacular blocks, but it was more kind of the, uh all right, I'm going to, this guy's coming in for a layup in transition and I'm going to run in from nowhere and block you. Right. He wasn't really a consistent rim protector. He didn't really rotate. He didn't really have, much lateral quickness at all. And he also just had made some terrible decisions. Uh, the two plays that stick out in my mind, you this one I had never realized until I, I went back and read your piece on him, was game six, they're up two yep. against Chicago in the 93 finals, and he just like goes for a steal three seconds after the pass gets there on Horace Grant. This is the, this and, is the final play of that season with 10 seconds left yeah. in the game. Yeah, and then Grant drives in. They have to help, and they give up a three to John Paxson. And, of course, Barkley wasn't exactly going to rotate over to Paxson either uh, <laughs> after after that. And then the other play that's indelible, also a Game 6 loss, is 97 with Houston. Right. Doesn't switch out onto John Stockton after a massive legal screen from Carl Malone. And John Stockton hits the series winning three against him as he just, his recognition, I mean, you would think in those situations, You're really locked in. His recognition, even in those situations, was atrocious. I I think your scouting report
0: is doing this justice because he was a very good defensive rebounder. You had to sort of get in there with the trees at that point in time, and he wasn't necessarily a poor post defender or anything like that. Maybe not great in man situations if he was guarding a wing or switched out, which happened occasionally, but everything else you just mentioned is the big thing for me, just the awareness um, some of the decision making at the team level, it it always sort of left something to be desired. Um, yeah, I don't have I don't have hugely positive things to say about his defense. In 1990, Philadelphia moved him to small forward. They brought in Rick Mahorn, and at that point in time, you know, with less spacing in the game and more bruisers, you wanted your interior defenders to be a paint presence. You wanted them to rotate and protect the hoop well and Philadelphia had a huge defensive jump in 90 from 89 when they made that change. That that to me is in a way, I mean I don't damning's not the right word, but that was always a really compelling piece of evidence for like you're kind of stuck if Barkley's playing one of your big men in terms of defensive ceiling.
1: Yeah, now when he did join up with a, a later career Elijah Juan, you can at least say that he didn't kill the defense. You you know I th- and that's really the only decent defensive big that he played with in his career so certainly you have to have that kind of a player around him but I think in that era maybe you can argue that at least he's not gonna kill your defense and he'll help your offense enough that you can get be a really good team and get into championship contention so I I mean certainly there were maybe only three or four teams that he played on that you can say were well built around him uh, especially on the defensive end so that's something in his defense but Certainly to say, it's just a question of how bad he was, you know, at this point. Yeah,
0: I mean, to be fair, again, those Phoenix teams, um, especially in the playoffs those couple of years, they were never bad defensive teams, but they were like around average. They were they were never particularly good, and they tried to put some defensive talent, certainly the 93 team with, I think Miller when he was on, was in the game to play defense, very long player, and then you have Dan Marley, you have other guys like that, so... Um, Speaking of playoffs, what what do you think, if anything, changed with Barkley when he got to the playoffs, had to, had to face those better teams? There was scheming. Um, what do you think about that?
1: Same player? Different player? Better? Worse? Well, I think definitely that you had more teams that could rotate that were smarter. He was a little bit of a one-trick pony, and if you either had someone who could guard him, which in his defense is not many <laughs> uh, when you really get into the later rounds uh, of the playoffs. Now, also worth noting that he really, there's only about four years and they're all in Phoenix where he's really getting into deep into the playoffs. Um, but I think the combination of longer, quicker defenders who rotate better and can double team him uh, force him to pass the ball and you know he's not he's not necessarily making like unbelievable passes. he's just making you know kind of right the the standard pass uh, out of the double team and then we'll swing it around uh he could he
0: could create yeah. some offense in other words that that could yeah. act as a fulcrum to generate shots every once in a while he had a great behind the back pass if he read a double team or something but yeah it
1: was it was good yeah. enough that it could create shots for teammates but on the other hand and there's just not many guys who could stop him one on one. You know, you still basically had to double team him. It's hard for me to go back and think of I mean he he had a really nice offensive series against the Bulls in 93 for example. That was a pretty good, not uh, maybe people remember that team as being a little bit better defensively than they actually were, but you know Horace Grant was a good defensive player if they tried to switch Pippen on him, I, he, they had to double team him most of that series and that was, you know, one of the better defensive teams. You know, maybe if you had Charles Oakley to guard him or something like that, then maybe you could try to do it one-on-one. But he basically created an instant double team, and that translates to me.
0: We should also mention the the point where I was running through his career earlier. The last thing I wanted to say connects perfectly back to this, which is that in 89, 90, 91 in Philadelphia, he still had that athletic pop. His scoring numbers in the playoffs actually take a dip when you get to those Phoenix years. They're not bad by any stretch of the imagination but you, you lose that high-end sort of crazy true shooting percentage. You don't have like 25 points on plus 12% true shooting percentage anymore. It's more yeah. like plus five. And I and I think that's worth noting just to remember that some of the things we're talking about with regards to his passing or whatnot, they don't necessarily coincide with, with when he had that dominant post-athleticism. So he still commanded a double, but You know, a little lack of lift maybe makes you miss a shot that you wouldn't miss every game or something like that.
1: I would also say this, that from maybe 1987 to 1993, you know, that six or seven-year period, probably saw the biggest jump in quality of play, um, both due to more three-pointers and teams actually trying on defense for the first time after the example of the Pistons. And, you know, maybe compare the only other comparable period probably would be this decade to me. Um, so I, I do think that if he wasn't playing quite as well by the end of that, uh, yeah, I agree that the lack of athletic pop, uh, or I shouldn't say lack, but the slight decline in athletic pop as he gets to be 29 and 30, uh, that happens to everybody. But it's just a lot harder to score at the, that same level. Uh, as it was even five years earlier, I would say.
0: We've talked about a few of these. Let's wrap up on Charles before we go to Carl. Biggest concern for him from a conceptual perspective for me, it's probably his defense that we've talked about and his conditioning.
1: Yeah, that's not good. He, he had some injuries later in his career as well. um I mean, when he was young, he was such a good athlete, it just didn't even matter. Um, well so yeah, the, yeah, those are definitely issues.
0: E- even in 94 though. I mean 94, yeah. I didn't feel like he was in the exact same shape he was in 93. And so it's just like this starts to sort of t- take away some of the like when we go to Malone, it's the opposite. Malone goes forever because of this.
1: Yeah, that that's definitely true. His and he's basically done what what did he have? Maybe like 8 or 9 years as really like a, you know, Top five, ten player in the league. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, so that's yeah, it's definitely lower than the other two guys we're gonna talk about in this podcast. Also, some pretty memorable playoff collapses where he was the best player. I mean, the, the ninety four and ninety five against the Rockets, pretty rough. By the end of that series in ninety five, his back is really acting up; he can't even move. Yeah, by that that game seven, the Mario Ellie game. Um, so, but uh, again, you mentioned the conditioning the health, uh, at the end. And then when he goes to Houston, I, I mean, I think he, he basically has one more decent year that uh, 96, 97, but it, you mentioned this in your piece that he doesn't really recover the efficiency, even when he's like, all right, I'm going to just focus on rebounding. Those were the quotes that he was saying at the start of that year. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how much really uh, he helped them that year when they really got it in the playoffs. Um, where he just you know wasn't able to provide that same level of scoring and was clearly a defensive liability. I, the the rebounding was really the skill that still remained as of that time. Yeah. Yeah, and
0: I think I think to the point about conditioning, he was clearly outside of this sort of best years by then. That was not prime Charles Barkley teaming up with Hakeem and Drexler. Okay. Shall we move on to the mailman Karl Malone? Oh yeah, who played who played forever And so just to kind of, uh, you know, keep our time within reason, I'm just going to jump right to the stretch where I think it's still a long prime. But when you get to 1990, Carl Malone is when he starts to he has this incredibly historic scoring season. And at that point in time, a lot of stuff in transition and a lot of stuff uh, just going to the basket, that athleticism, the power. But I want to I want to really hone in on. 1992 to 1998, because for me, that's prime Carl Malone. I don't even know which one of those seasons necessarily to pinpoint at his best. Um, Is that in line with where you're at, just
1: out of the gate? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think that he was such an interesting player because he didn't have a ton of athleticism once you get to the middle part of that decade. Uh, you know, he was this unbelievable force in transition. He would come in, dunk on you off of one foot. He had very little two foot explosion, though, um, which is, is something that I think became an issue. You pointed that out in your yeah. scouting report yep. as well. Also, worth noting that I think for a lot of the league, you could argue the quality of play almost went downhill in the period from 1996 to 1998. If you look at who the best players were then? It was all these old dudes—Jordan and Malone, Elijah. On were still around at that point because you had the combination of a ton of expansion and really bad drafts from '88 to '91. It's a unique. So, it's a unique yeah. period.
0: Just, just yeah. that's a great point because it's really the only time. And I have a piece I think on Backpicks, not nylon calculus, about this. It's really the only time in NBA history where that many good players are made up from like a, a mid-30-something population among the league.
1: Yeah, we're still dealing with that, too, because in the 99 lockout, when they bring in the max salary, it's like, oh, you can only get the 35% max if you have 10-plus years of experience, this idea that the best players were always going to be that age, and the uh, the what was then the over-35 rule, I think, when it came in, and, and clearly – no, the best players in the the NBA generally are not going to be thirty five year olds. <laughs>
0: I like I love how you slipped in a little cap space stuff right there. Even though it's twenty years ago, that's impressive.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, Malone is so, so interesting because uh, his game is again is not something that you would necessarily see today. His the way I see him, and I, I'm rambling a little bit here, but. He doesn't really seem like a natural, does he? No. Like he's he seems like he just had these incredible physical capabilities, and he, and he worked and he worked and he worked, and he made himself into a player. But it just seemed like you know he 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 doesn't seem like a guy who just like grew up playing pickup all the time, and just like basketball just came naturally to him. Like his just his feel with the ball, he always was like kind of a bull in a china shop. So let's use that to
0: refine what happened in this decade a little bit he by the way was like a 48 percent free throw shooter when he came into the league so he is one of the all-time great cases of a guy just working and working and working and trying to improve and I think the early part of that decade in the 90s it was more athleticism he still had a jumper you know people if you only caught the back end of his career you've seen classic games on NBA uh, TV or whatever like he still had a jumper in the late 80s, early 90s. But his game was more interior focused. He tried to use that bruising power. He was quicker with the first step. They had way more transition stuff in Utah for him back in the early 90s. And then, as you just pointed out, you get to sort of like the middle part of the decade and there's this shift. And when I went back and did his piece a couple years ago for the top 40, you, you really start to notice like, okay, maybe two thirds of his offense is near the hoop in 1992. But by the time you get to like 97 or 98, he's moved his offense out to this mid-range jumper that he just had largely dialed in, although it's a, it's a low efficiency shot. And that, along with developing his passing, developing his reads, um, that kind of kept like his superficial regular season stuff even across that period. But there were differences in the player, I think especially when you get to the playoffs, from early 90s to late 90s Malone
1: yeah and and this is the first season that we have shot location data it's 2000 2001 age 37 for him but he's taking 55 percent of his shots as two pointers from outside of 10 feet
0: yeah that's a that's basketball reference right I think nba.com has had stuff from 97 which was the first year of play-by-play it's not it's in the community we don't think of it as quite as accurate it has more tagging errors but yeah. you see the same thing, like starting 97, 98, 99, all the way through those post-prime years, he's just shooting a bunch of long twos and mid-range mid range twos.
1: Now, it's worth noting that, yeah, oh, long twos, inefficient. Well, when you consider, number one, that pace really slows down, right? Like game six of the 98 finals Ooh. is a 72 possession game. Oh, uh, that, that whole series pace, was a grind. Yeah. So pace really slows down, uh, so you're working a lot in the half court already, and then when you're, the overall offensive efficiency isn't that high, being able to hit you know 40 percent of those shots, 42 percent of those shots, not turn the ball over, that's actually you know that has a lot of value, and, and these are really really good Jazz offensive teams that he's on.
0: Fantastic. Once they got Jeff Hornacek, we're talking about teams that were like plus six, plus seven ahead of the league in offensive efficiency. So if the league average was 105, they were up at 112. And we saw the same thing in the postseason. Uh, If you look at multi-year stretches of their playoff offenses, they were also in that like plus six, plus seven range every year from 1992 to 1998. And that point you just made about turnovers, I think is a critical one because Malone was not a guy whose postseason scoring fell apart in the early part of the decade. It was in the back half of the decade, I think, when he was taking more jumpers, had less of that athletic pop, and we just talked about the same thing with Charles Barkley, but his turnovers go down. He doesn't necessarily have another guy to shoulder a huge load, and the Jazz offenses are still, I mean, 95 to 98, that's the years where they had the most postseason success, despite other teams like seattle and chicago and they would lose to the bulls but they played these teams and they played them fairly well
1: yeah now the how much credit do you give him as opposed to stockton or hornacek for those good offenses
0: so i give him a good amount of credit but within the context of adding the shooting and spacing of hornacek having stockton and hornacek as other guys who could create offense. I mean, Stockton had the ball far more than Malone did. And so I think that whole system, even the even the bigs they would play next to him, I mean, you would get your Greg Oster tags and uh, Felton Spencers, you'd get guys like that. But Sloan also liked bigs that could open up the paint. Just what we talked about with Jaminsky, you know, the, the Jeff Fosters of the world, Antoine Carr, right? They would run like sets where if Malone got it on the post Yeah, uh,
1: it really is that the answer do I have to say yes <laughs> yeah no I mean that, that was uh yeah Carr was a a decent like 15 foot jump shooter for that time which was uh that was that was a stretch big back in yes those yes days, that's that's the point
0: I'm making it's just I mean, like no,
1: no Sam Perkins but yeah
0: I, I think the whole system I mean one of the larger questions I wanted to ask you about because I certainly have it for myself is what does Malone look like in these years, 1992 to 1998, if he's in a different system. I mean, Jerry Sloan is his coach for basically the entirety of this guy's prime.
1: Yeah, it would be interesting to, to think about that. You know, early in his career, he gets so much in transition. He's in this unbelievable shape, and it really was an excellent marriage of the system and the player because so much of what he was doing, especially late in his career, is... Deep post ups at the charge circle, uh, you know it, the cross screening action that they love to do, the the flex stuff that they love to do, um, you know it, it wasn't necessarily as much pick and roll. Just people like to focus on that because who's Stockton and Malone pick and roll, but uh, it was really more about Stockton making great entry passes to me to Malone to finish it right at what would have been the charge circle if if it was there at the time, and he was so strong and so indefatigable that you just especially in the regular season at that time, you just weren't going to be able to keep him out of there. And then when he got the ball there, he would just, he was so big, he would just kind of flail and get fouled and get to the foul line. Um, But I think if you had a more traditional post-up game for him at earlier in his career in particular, I don't know if that would have been as effective because his feel for finishing around the rim uh, was not amazing he would kind of get his shoulder into you and he'd flail and like I don't know if he had the longest arms uh, right. uh, he didn't really have a traditional jump hook he would kind of sweep across the lane every <laughs> once in a while for a hook shot but if he just like got the ball underneath and you could avoid following him he was he, he a decent chance he was gonna miss the shot he didn't have a left hand at all um he wasn't so super, skill, Yeah. he wasn't super yeah. vertical
0: I mean that's right. that's sort of the
1: way I see yeah it. Yeah, um, I mentioned I mentioned that the two foot leaping right. Yeah, you know, right. as a one foot jumper, yeah, he would come in and dunk on you early in his, early in his career. Uh, but yeah, he did not have that explosion from a standstill around the basket.
0: He did have a little kind of like a little left shoulder turnaround, which plugged into his face up that whole face up jumper that he developed yeah. and sort of lived off of at the second half of the decade. But you know, to your point he wasn't a guy with a plethora of post moves, but we've talked about two of the greatest power forwards ever so far.
1: And we were saying, eh, they didn't, they didn't really have a great bag of tricks. Um, yeah. Well, Malone at least had that face-up jumper. He had a little bit of a fade away. He at least had like a little bit of kind of jab step game. And again, he wasn't going to, he, he could put it on the floor. And then if he got the shoulder by you, again, he was probably going to get fouled, right? He was just going to yeah. get, go through you, get bumped look really awkward, and the the officials uh, would give him the whistle on those plays.
0: So interestingly enough, in my metrics in the postseason, he's he's very similar throughout a lot of the decade, but he actually peaks at the end of the decade when his numbers go down. My model says, hey, everything else that's going on, your turnovers go down, your passing goes up, your shot creation goes up. As we just talked about, that's probably because of the pieces around him. Um, But what happened was earlier in the decade, he was like, 27 28 points per 75 plus five percent true shooting so you know whatever if 55 percent was average this this is in the playoffs this is in the playoffs early in the decade and then in the second half of the decade those scoring numbers are the thing that really helps cement his sort of negative reputation as a playoff guy because the scoring numbers went to like 28 and negative two or 28 and right around average true shooting or something like that so you lose that efficiency you lose that pop but there were trade-offs you know the passing got better the shot creation got better the turnovers went way down Utah's offenses were still really good I think if you know full circle back to the question you asked I kind of feel like he did too much like I kind of feel like he was burdened with a load that was a little outside of his skill set if that makes sense
1: yeah, that that might be true, and you know when the system broke down for them in the playoffs, they, he did have to do a little bit more isolation work uh, towards the end of his career. Uh, but I mean, he was able to, especially in the regular season, really able to handle that usage. Well, I mean, thirty three percent usage in his best year, ninety seven. Incredible that's a power forward. Incredible but,
0: and, regular season yeah. scoring. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did so? How do you think? Um, we've talked a little bit about this, but any other? additions you want to point out on team circumstances, the situations he was in either helping or hurting perception of him over time and I'll seed this by saying what happened in 2004 with the Lakers, even though it was at the very end of his career, really got me thinking about what would this guy look like? Does he, does he is he a more active defender? you know he's never vertical, but the strength, the horizontal the, the foot speed were really was really quick the hands, the, the, the guile you know he loved to pull the chair if you put him in a different system earlier in his career and you dial back the offense a little bit what does that look like do we think more highly of him less highly of him um, those are some of the things that I'm thinking about here
1: yeah I, I think it would be difficult for us to think more highly of him
0: so you think he just gets gets the 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 shine if you will from having just those awesome scoring numbers
1: well, he, he was the number one option on that team. And he, I mean, Stockton might be a little overrated, but he was still an excellent passer. Hornacek was an excellent passer. They had pretty good spacing on those teams. Uh So I, I think, it, and they had a system that where everything was revolving around him. So uh, I would be hard pressed to think of a situation that would be much better for him. Uh, that doesn't mean that he couldn't have taken on a small smaller role on some of these other teams and his outside shooting Uh, for that era was pretty good. So he certainly could have spotted up plenty. He did that even in in Utah. He could have done some pick and pop perhaps uh, as well. So uh, I don't think that he's like, oh, he would have sucked somewhere else. But uh, it's hard for me to think that there's another system that he could have been in that would have made him look better. Maybe he could have been a little more efficient, but uh, he also wouldn't have had uh, the sort of heliocentric jazz system around him. Yeah, I,
0: I buy that. If, if you're listening and you're wondering why we're not bringing up Stockton more or Stockton in the pick and roll, I've written a bunch about it. You can, you can look it up. Uh, essentially, I think Stockton, and now not just I think, Stockton has a history of his numbers plummeting in the postseason. And while he was a great all-time player and a very good passer and all the things Nate's alluded to with post entries and there was a synergy, um, especially when you get to the second half of the decade, it was Malone doing heavy lifting in the playoffs. Let's close on Carl. The biggest concern you have based on his career?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that my biggest concern is probably the circumstance of the end of his peak, that in another era, not even necessarily another era in terms of style, but just another era where there was more talent in the league at that time, that we wouldn't have been talking about him as one of the top two players in the NBA from ages 32 to 35. Hmm. Uh, so that that's one that comes to mind defensively. I think he was solid, but not unbelievable. He's an, uh, another guy who needed this rim protector next to him. Certainly, if you're going to portage him into this era, uh, much like Barkley, there'd be a, a lot of issues. Um, so I don't know. What about you?
0: Portage? Is that where we portage into the
1: air? Yeah, like you're you're taking him from this one part of the river and taking him across land a shorter distance and then putting him in this other part of the river man it's like uh yeah I've, I've been reading like a, a few too many books about like uh French Canada and uh oh the
0: the the, the dams or the what do they have up there the uh, the levees and all the, the river uh, systems
1: well they have they have locks now locks thank you at, yes. at one point you did th- there're just a lot of a lot of portages for you know LaSalle probably did some portaging – uh Saguenay river one of my favorite rivers in the world john john wesley paul big portage guy where were we what
0: happened (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what's going on um i i think my biggest concern with malone is what we just kind of talked about which is if this is a player whose value primarily comes from his scoring how great was that scoring actually you know does it does it gel really well as a if you have another if you have like a kobe like a wing who could be a larger offensive presence how well does that gel with that do you want him to be i mean you kind of your concern like he's not probably a top two guy in better years so do you want him to carry that load th- th- that's probably the biggest concern for me
1: yeah and it's It's hard to have a much better support, to make the argument like, okay, he didn't have anyone around him. You know, maybe I think a better scoring point guard maybe could have taken a little bit of pressure off of him offensively. Um, He also wasn't like an unbelievable offensive rebounder for a size, like not like Barkley. So actually, this is what I wanted to ask you. Better peak Barkley or Malone? Oh, can we answer
0: that in about 30 minutes?
1: Uh, absolutely yeah no i i've got a i've got a construct for for that that we can we can bring cool okay Um, We'll we'll definitely
0: circle back to that but i i want to feather in dirk nowitzki our last of the power forwards here much
1: like his beautiful mid-range jumper would feather in oh
0: so poetic can we afterwards we're going to do a post show and it's going to be about locks and portage um but, but uh dirk nowitzki um for me, really, the period to talk about is 2006 to 2011. He's certainly a guy who grows in the early parts of the 2000s. It's the it's the Dirk and Nash, and they had other offensive, pe- you know, Michael Finley. They had all these offensive pieces there in Dallas before Nash left. And when Nash leaves, 2003, Dirk has a great year, just like starting to put himself in the conversation of top five players in the league. And I want to jump to 2005 when Nash left. And to me, it was very clear that he had growing pains that year. Great year, by the way. But all the little things that were better in 2006, you know, how am I going to be as a creator? How am I making these reads in the mid post or pinch post when you're running offense through me? Basically, my decision making, my passing, all that's everything about his game felt more refined. His statistics were a little more refined. His 2006 postseason was like, the arrival, hey, I'm here. I'm one of the best guys in the world. I'm a monster. So to me, that's really when Nowitzki, maybe 05, but that 06 period is when he's worth talking about in his prime. And then I don't actually think of 2007 much differently. Takes MVP in 2007, has the um, the collapse, the quote unquote collapse for the second straight year. So 2006, they were up 2 0, lost 4 to Miami, 2007 lost to the eight seed, we believe, Warriors. And ironically, Nate, I think it's after that, in 2008, when Dirk starts to really round out his offensive game. He's like cast aside by everyone as a choker, but he adds a little weight, uh, he's stronger, he's sturdier, lower center of gravity kind of stuff, starts to work on that one-legged, the legendary one-legged step back. And that period, 2008, 2009, through the championship year in 2011, that to me is the best Dirk Nowitzki offensive version ever. Well, the stats wouldn't necessarily support you, would they? The playoff stats, I think, support me. We can we can yeah. get to that. Okay, but, but that's, that's what's that's
1: reasonable. Yeah, yeah com-
0: compared to regular season. Yeah, and that's yeah. what there's a there's an inversion. So that's a great question. So basically the regular season stats go in the other way. He, he peaks up in 06 and 07 and then starts to go down a little bit. The playoff stats, he drops off a little bit with like scoring numbers or overall performance in 06 and 07. And then especially that like 09 to 11 stretch, uh, I have it here. So 2005 to 2007, three-year playoff averages, 25 points per 75 plus 4% true shooting in my estimates of shot creation created four shots per teammates per 100 2009 to 2011 30 points per 75 plus nine percent true shooting um uh, oh my god i need a defibrillator my heart just stopped that is like <laughs> that is like all-time level scoring right there over you know whatever it was 13 1400 minutes created six shots an estimated six shots per teammates per 100 and his overall box plus minus was actually very similar to In my model in that period peaked uh, in 2009 to 2011, I think, in the um, impact sort of on off. I have Jacob Goldstein's playoff PIPM somewhere, but I didn't I didn't turn it up for this. I got to get that.
1: Yeah, that makes a a lot of sense. And I think at that period in time, he's also uh, I mean, he's got that 24 for 24 from the foul line game against the Thunder. Yeah, he's in the 90s in in 2011. Uh, you know, sh- shooting it incredibly well, still never turning the ball over either. Uh, and it did seem like there were fewer antidotes to him. But it, it's so funny to talk about this, though, because there were all of these periods where the story was, oh, he's like, he's conquered his demons, right? Like 5 06. it used to be you could put the smaller guy on him and he could really, body him up and stay in front of him and he wasn't strong enough to really get into the post and kill that guy he didn't he wasn't able to face up and just use his size to drive through him oh and then he kills Bruce Bowen in that uh, 06 second round and he, he's he kills Sean Marion as a 53point game in the next round and then Udonis Haslam shuts him down in the last four games of the finals right and, and so Stephen Jackson. It, it, Right, yes. yeah, Stephen Jackson Captain the Jack. next year. After, after again, the narrative is, oh, huge disappointment. Because remember, he already has this massive disappointment, right, in uh, the finals in 06 and oh, all through the 07 regular season. Now he's really he's learned from that. He's killing that. And then he comes in and gets shut down by Stephen Jackson and you know probably not a great defensive team, ultimately, uh, in those, we believe, Warriors. And that's a huge disappointment. And then it just seems like for four years after that, He's not really going to be relevant. The team around him isn't that good. You know, he's 30, 31, and then age 32 uh, experiences that ultimate redemption. Really one of the more out-of-nowhere championships that you're ever going to see that season.
0: Yeah, and I think that narrative that you just outlined added to how out-of-nowhere it was for some people because there was a there was a disconnect with how he had been ramping up his game. Like, his playoff yeah. series in the couple years before that, even though Dallas wasn't good enough to compete with the Big Dogs during those years. But his individual performances in those playoff series was stunning. And it just kind of went by the wayside. And that year, 2011, it was a nice confluence of events. You know, the Heat were a very flawed roster. The Lakers were at the end. And you didn't need to be a dominant team to take the ring. You needed to be a good enough, competent team. When Dallas was together, they played it you know, 60, 60 win pace and change when they were healthy. I thought Tyson Chandler was a great addition. You kind of, and we'll get to this probably in a second. I always feel like you need that rim protecting big man next to Nowitzki. You can't, Don Nelson tried to play him at center in the earlier part of the, of the 2000s. And well, that makes your offense look great. Um, Your, your defense has problems when you try that.
1: Yeah. Now at that time they didn't have any center worth playing. So, it was probably the right move to to do that how, and they won a lot of games
0: how dare you blaspheme dare... sean
1: bradley like that
0: <laughs> they did um, they, they did yeah. well with yeah. they did well with some of the bradley lineups by the way to be fair true but they yeah. were but, uh, but it was it was a lot of free agent money too you know you had jerry stackhouse and antoine walker and you had these big personalities nick van exel and so especially with don nelson like you're gonna throw them all in the game
1: yeah that makes sense i think uh Back to Chandler, though, that's the important thing. And, and really, a theme throughout all of these is these are offensive power forwards. Sorry, the cat just jumped out. And Cat attack. <laughs> these are offensive power forwards. And generally, those guys are not also great at defense. I mean, that's why KG is is such a unique force. Maybe Tim Duncan, if you want to consider him a power forward, which I don't. Hey, 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 to that's, some of these other that's guys. the next episode stop <laughs> you slow your roll there yeah i mean but like it, it, worth remembering though how absolutely stacked the power forward position is in like the mid-2000s with incredible weber and Rashid wallace are, are are those are like your fifth and sixth best power forwards in the nba
0: yeah that was like your next tier of power forward after some of those
1: guys um yeah, where where the hell were so, his so, playoff performance? So yeah. Dirk,
0: so Dirk, let's just let's sort of summarize before we continue on his strengths and weaknesses as a player, the all-time great spacing from a big man, just a fantastic shooter. But throughout his entire career in Dallas, either played above the arc, high post. I think an underrated thing that I wanted to talk about with him was he had a little off-ball movement in his game. Like even when oh, he was yeah. right, even when he was older. They would run stuff. You'd have a little two-man action off ball, and he could come up and catch or come up and catch and get into a move. Uh, this was not a stationary player. You know, we talked about Barkley and Malone. You wouldn't think of setting a pin down for Charles Barkley, but with Nowitzki, you would do that and get him into a move or uh, a mid-post catch.
1: Oh, yeah. That was awesome. And his pick-and-pop ability, too, was just so additive. And we're not focusing on this aspect of his career necessarily, but even up until maybe 14, 15, you've got a Mavericks team without really any other stars on it playing until they got Rondo at one of the best levels offensively of all time, just all because of his pick and pop. Every time he sets a screen for a guard, the guard is basically just able to go right to the basket because his man is just going to stick to him. Yeah, And they, you just could not leave him. And for any team that didn't have the ability to switch that action and Earlier in his career, Dirk would just kill that switch from the nail. That was the other thing he loved to do uh, after that switch, was to just post up right at the free throw line where it was tough to give help and he could drive either direction. Uh, like the, that, he just, even if you had totally average guards with him, just any guard who could even remotely get to the basket at all was going to look awesome with him.
0: Yeah. I mean, that entire pinch post mid post all those catches around the nail and the free throw line he's just one of the best ever to do it Um, if you're a younger younger listener and you like haven't seen this guy set up shop in the mid post there's there's a reason he's got those playoff scoring numbers that I just cited earlier and the low turnovers like he wasn't a great passer could make sort of those one level passes could shut set up stuff for teammates but really low turnover, really efficient with the things that he did there. And I always thought that sort of gave him a little defensive value back because you're never turning stuff over and giving up odd man rushes or all that transition offense. Um, I always thought that was a huge boost for him, just those those low turnovers from there.
1: Oh, absolutely. And just his ability to get to the foul line, right? This, he had this reputation – for being soft, I mean, some of these playoff free throw rates are just absolutely off the chart, and he was a ninety percent free throw shooter.
0: Yeah, he's because so, he's a handful. Because who do you who do you put on him? That was really the question. You know, when we get to this period, yeah. like two thousand six through this period, who guards him?
1: Yeah, I mean, you you almost had to go with like a Bruce Bowen, Stephen Jackson type. Because, like you said, if it was a traditional power forward, run that guy off a sc- run that guy off a of screens. He's not used to getting through. Screens. Yeah, he's not going to be able to. And the unblockable release from behind his head. I mean, there was just. Uh, it was pretty ridiculous. I mean, he he didn't he didn't have like a traditional post game where he would like post up right under the basket or uh you know didn't have much of a jump hook. He also couldn't really go left shoulder. Amazingly, especially late in his career. It's funny. You ever noticed this? How late in their careers, guys almost become like caricatures of themselves. <laughs> Lamarcus Aldridge is that. Yeah, like like Dirk was like that. He just could na- couldn't, and, and most guys actually I think feel better going left shoulder as right-handed players, but he only could go right shoulder in the post, and eventually it got to where he was uh, unathletic enough that people could stop that, but for a long time it didn't matter, and he also was able to face up and drive. I mean, that was the biggest difference after that 2011 season was his face-up drive game, Just he was too slow, it yep. just didn't really work anymore. Yeah. Um, he he uh, enjoyed himself during the lockout. He, he after did. the Twenty eleven. He, he did.
0: He he took a nice uh, he took a nice deserved vacation for a very long time after that. Uh, what do you, what do you think about his defense though?
1: Well, he is about as good of a defensive player as you can be if you say that you're never allowed to move your feet any wider than your shoulders at any time.
0: <laughs> you you almost made me spit my water out. Yeah, he. I mean. Those pitter patter steps, they they helped at times. He could he could position himself okay, but just lacked lacked great verticality, lacked recoverability to me. Didn't have great awareness on those rotations. And to your point about his feet, when you play such a big role, when your responsibility in the paint, you know, is such that you need to make sure you don't let guys get layups. You want to be able to cut and have agility. And that wasn't really a strength of his. Yeah.
1: His lateral movement is in considering how balletic he could be on the offensive end. At times, his lateral movement was just, I've never seen anything that bad, even when he was good. Uh, And and then by the end of his career, it was just a traffic cone. It was hilarious to me that teams would try to post him up. And that was like the one thing he was actually okay at. Like, Oh, we're going to go out there. We're going to post up like nah, Just get him in space guys. Like, and i think he benefited some from the fact that spread pick and roll really other than phoenix nobody was playing that way really until the end of his career i think he could have been a much much bigger defensive liability uh the fact that most teams were playing traditional power forwards that he could guard I and mean, he he kind of by the end he would get the same problem that the cavs would have with kevin love where okay he's too slow to play anything but center but he also doesn't really protect the basket but it, it by say the 2011 finals it wasn't quite enough stretch to really force him to have to play center defensively he had Tyson Chandler next to him so
0: well th- that was yeah. that was part of it for me by 2011 he i felt like he had figured out how to use his size and his body in the team scheme that they wanted in the half court way yeah. better so if you had everything like below the foul line he was a very good defensive rebounder because if he could stay below the foul line, he could have some success. He took charges instead of block shots for a seven-footer. Sure. Um, so I thought all those things combined with his lack of turnovers on offense always sort of helped, like any of his defensive metrics or his his plus-minus defensive base, base metrics. So you know there is a little positive there, but the point I like that you're making is that not everybody at that period of time put something in to exploit his defensive weaknesses.
1: Yeah, and he, if he had played ten years later, he's probably even better offensively, and he's probably even worse defensively. Uh, so it's the other thing I want to just say about him is, again, it's so weird that he just like couldn't even get in a stance and move laterally. He was very upright. His balance was unbelievable. Yeah, but but that he was also like hard to make him lose his balance. I mean, that the one-legged thing, he would also have these pump fakes where he would get the guy in the air, but then his feet wouldn't even really be set, and he could just launch the, the shot over the guy. Um, obviously, the way he was able to get to the foul line was, was incredible, but he wouldn't really like get knocked off balance at all offensively, and he was able to get a lot stronger get to the basket as his career went on. I mean, his work with uh, Holger Gelschwender, I think is how you say that. Oh, name. that's his impressive. Personal coach's name. Portage, uh, and
0: now this. Um, biggest concern based on his career for you?
1: you know i think his offense travels anywhere like i said the the pick and pop is awesome even if he's not getting the ball in isolation he is just fantastic offensively i mean i think his three point shooting almost was underutilized at times especially after nash left i think the most three pointers per 100 possessions that he ever averaged was like maybe 5 oh it was um, it was
0: low yeah
1: yeah uh, and, and that, I think, was the last Nash year in '04, which was... Actually, that team was one of the greatest offenses of all time. They just couldn't stop anybody to save their lives. Uh, and and then Nash leaves. So, But he obviously could play extremely well with Nash. He could come off a screen. He, there's really nothing that he couldn't do offensively other than offensive rebound. Uh, and, yeah, certainly defensively in a different era, uh, it would have been a problem. But you can also say, hey, if he played in an earlier era, trying to guard him at the three-point line... Would have been completely impossible for some of these teams, or even you know, to guard him coming off of screens or in the mid range, would have been completely impossible. So uh, I don't have a ton of concerns. I think he he was the guy who made a lot of those teams, but I think he could have worked really on any team, uh, unless uh, I guess you, what you can say is if you don't have a solid rim protecting center mm, next to him, yes. your defense won't be good enough.
0: That's been mine. Mine is. I agree with you. I think offensively, he can fit in with other kinds of talent. Um, in a way, when he was younger, I've compared him a lot to Paul Pierce, and I think that's a great example of sort of someone where if he were to, if Dirk were to suddenly be on a team with more, you know, stars, he wasn't that heliocentric model that we've talked about. Uh, I think his offense in more off-ball stuff or in different roles would still be
1: great, but yeah. that deep. That- well, and even you see it. You see it in his late career too, where he's not the same isolationist, but he still is really the common yeah. denominator on some great offense.
0: Great point, great point. But it's but it's the defense. It's the it's the scale of the ceiling. Like in other words, he is one of those guys. Barkley as well. How do I build an elite team if I'm playing this guy at four? I absolutely need uh, a elite defensive five. Right. That's that's my thinking, and then. Yeah. You also, and Dallas, I think, struggled with this. For They, they tinkered with it and they kind of got it as good as you could get it, given their assets. But you also need defensive talent to round out the roster because you're potentially just, how are you going to have an elite defense? You need to have the model of like, I want to maximize my offense and get a really, really high level offense. And I need to do that with defensive talent because if I don't, I'm not going to have a very good defense that's the challenge for
1: me. Yeah. But he played on some pretty good defenses though. Ultimately, when they really you know, a lot of the t- the focus was on offense early in his career, but you know, that 07 team had a pretty good defense. So they had Josh Howard on the wing, when they got Kidd and Chandler, uh you know, they I mean, they shut down that 2011 Heat team like they they shut down LeBron and he didn't at least stop them from doing that. So,
0: they yeah, yeah, but but and this is where you know you get into uh, picking nits to a certain degree, but I want a guy who is it's going to be easier for me to say, okay, can I get this team to plus nine or plus ten in point differential? Can I can I get this team up into the upper sixties in wins uh, versus you know plus six or plus seven? And again, that sounds like nitpicking a lot to people, but sure. when you get in a playoff series, it's the diff- I want more series that are. and 80-20 I don't want a lot of coin flips in my series and so different matchups present different possibilities and you just want that like super super well-rounded team um that's always been my question with Dirk like are you more limited in how you build around them and I have the exact same concern for Barkley
1: yeah and the the era plays a huge part of that right because once you get it I think that yeah the spacing and, and the way that offense was played was trending in the wrong direction for him, as he really grew immobile towards the end of his career. But if you put him from 2007 into now, I agree you can't switch defensively with him at all. So, I mean, so how, how many? Let
0: yeah. me let me pause you. I want to because I want to yeah. come back to that um, in a second. But Bef- before we get to that whole topic, because I think there's a lot of things to discuss there. Um, these three guys we just discussed. I'm curious. How would you rank them as scores?
1: At just as scores? Yeah, like their own offense. Correct. I mean, I definitely think that Dirk is the best offensive player of the three. Agreed. Um,
0: Who Who's the second best yeah. offensive
1: player? <laughs> I think it's probably Barkley. I, I, I do too. I think it's Barkley. the offensive rebounding. That's part of yep. your offense, right? And I think he just was just a little bit more difficult to deal with than Malone. Um, now, if you're going to say Malone's going to be the second best player, I'd probably rather have him as my second best player than Barkley mm, um, yeah. because of the lack of shooting from Barkley. I think that's a problem and the lack of, well, I mean, all right, we're, we're, I'm fucking up the, uh, the contract <laughs> here by bringing in defense, but um, yeah, I think probably Barkley would be my, uh, my number two, um, even if you want to, I mean, Malone obviously was able to sustain much higher usage in part due to the fact that you could throw it to him at the elbow and he could take the jump shot, he wasn't reliant on getting within three feet of the basket to score efficiently.
0: So here's here's the weird thing for me. I, Dirk is the best offensive player to me. Dirk is, I would even say, by far the best score, just getting his own stuff. I, I kind of think younger Malone might have been a better pure score. Pure is not the right word. Just isolation, getting his own stuff, score than Barkley. But I like Barkley better as an offensive player, and that offensive rebounding, when you fold that in, probably tips it back to Barkley. So my, my question here is, if you think about how they fit, you alluded to it, if you think about how they fit and how they scale on better teams, how does Barkley's sort of isolation tendency, lack of moves, reliance on athleticism, balance out against his offensive rebounding, which I think is something that is very scalable because it's off ball. You can play with other guys and run more offense through them, and you can get yeah. in there and create value and clean up your misses.
1: Well, in a modern sense, maybe it's not as scalable because you have to be or start around the basket. You're, you're taking up space there. I mean, that's a big part of why offensive rebounding is going down in addition to trying to prevent transition is just, hey, standing around the basket screws up the spacing for everyone else. So I think there is a point at which that's not going to translate as well, especially when you're considering he's a power forward And so now you also have a center who's probably going to need to be around the basket as well. Now if you have a shooting center, oh man, Charles Barkley is going to really mess you up.
0: Mm. Okay, so let's just jump, let's get back in that DeLorean from the beginning. Jump all the way back to 2020, right now. Who would you take if you're picking a team right now and sort of what are the things that you think are magnified? Like Dirk's three-point shooting is going to be magnified, but are you playing Dirk at four now how does this work Barkley's playing Barkley has to play four I guess right
1: yeah I would think so I mean I think because they're all traditional power forwards who couldn't switch Malone to me is clearly the best defender of the three yeah but he's not really a rim protector uh but yeah. you know he would take charges he uh could, sorry what were well say? I was
0: gonna say I, I agree he's not a rim protector but does his horizontal strengths his athleticism quick feet just the way he played more horizontally. Does that have more value now?
1: I think they're all going to be so bad it's not really going to matter because they're. they're, I mean, Malone was was definitely is in the best condition. He's going to try the hardest, but he can't. I mean, it's all going to be pick and roll now, right? Like his post defense doesn't really matter at the four. Nobody cares about that anymore. Like he, he was good at that. He could in a different era he could hold up at center because he could defend the five guys weren't going to be able to post him up. He had that strip move. Now, though, he wouldn't be able to defend the five because of his lack of room protection and uh lack of pick and roll defense, I would say. Uh, so mm. I mean, I think they're all going to be so bad defensively that I don't consider that a, a massive part of this. And I think Dirk just fits so much better in the modern game offensively, uh, with the portability of his skills, portage ability of his skills. <laughs> uh, so okay, uh. Yeah, the, so so I, I think it's it's pretty clearly dirt to me because I, I think Charles when he's off ball is going to take away a lot of value. Malone doesn't shoot threes. Maybe he could get there, but it, it didn't really Where do have you, that where do you even put
0: Barkley? Shot. Where does where does if he doesn't have the ball, is he just yeah. hunting for offensive rebounds? Like does it look like the 76ers offense today? What wh- wh- what does he do?
1: Yeah, I mean, he's probably he's in the dunker spot um I mean, I guess he would. He would. He would shoot. I mean, he would kind of be like a Russell Westbrook three point shooter, where he would just take him and right. hope that you guard him out there a little bit, but probably not. Uh, but I mean, I think you would try and use him the way that we've been advocating that the Pelicans would use Zion um, ultimately. But he doesn't. Charles. The difference between Zion and Charles is Zion, I think, can attack on ball a little bit more. Um, just has a little bit more dribble moves than Charles did
0: change of direction but, as well yeah yeah Big yeah difference. charles
1: was not the greatest ball handler in the world he'd kind of just get going downhill like a a, a freight train um but no it, it would really Nowitzki to me fits on any team malone again maybe you put a shooting center who can also protect the rim all right there's five of those guys in the league <laughs> so <laughs> that's, you're not that's doing that great there yeah yeah um so you know you can't
0: yeah go ahead okay so here's a question about dirk that that sort of has popped into my head as we've been talking. How do you think he would compare in terms of value, impact, You know, the kind of things he can succeed at? You take Dirk from 10 years ago, prime Dirk. How would he compare versus someone like Carl Anthony Towns?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Towns is yeah. a much better passer. He is a better passer. Uh, yep. Much as his defense has been criticized, he's a much better rim protector than Dirk. Yep, agreed. Uh better offensive rebounder. Mm-hmm. Dirk, who's who's a better... Though, who's yeah.
0: a, Nate, who's a better shooter? <laughs>
1: uh, I think Towns actually has a little more versatility to the three-point shot than Dirk ever did. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dirk, it, it, he didn't have the quickest release uh, from three in particular. It took him a while to really load up, and he wasn't really able to shoot... You know, he didn't shoot step-backs from three or anything like that. But I think what changes it for Nowitzki is Nowitzki is a better pick-and-pop guy, Agreed. and he... Also, can do the isolation stuff, and you know we saw, for example, granted this team basically had a 2008 lineup, but you saw how the Rockets were really able to make it extremely difficult for Towns in and when Towns, you know he he's 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 going to post up traditionally, but he doesn't have anywhere close to the turn and face game. Towns kind of has a little bit lower of a release as well. He's not going to be able to shoot mid rangers over guys. So I think Dirk, as an individual creator and scorer, you can always get him the ball, and he's always going to be able to just about, against any matchup, get a good shot. Whereas Towns, I think it's just a little bit more difficult uh, to use him. Uh, He's a little bit more of a dependent player, where Dirk, worst case scenario, you just throw him the ball.
0: So I think what's, I don't know if I disagree with anything you said, but what's fascinating talking this through is that you wouldn't expect to pick a big guy today who's got a three-point shooting edge over Dirk I think Towns does in this in the versatility the style the volume but it's really what we're really saying what you really just described is Dirk's mid post game is the thing that even today would still help him separate it would still make him more impervious to whatever defenses tried to throw at him in the playoffs yeah ah, and, and mid-range. also
1: his ability to get to the foul line too yeah
0: but that comes from that mid-range in my opinion. That comes from all that setting people up, the up fakes, you know, one quick dribble to your left, whatever, his size. It stems from operating in that part of the floor. Look, Kind of like Durant-esque. Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, so um, do you want to get back to the the Barkley versus Malone (laughs) peak question? You like Dirk's peak better over Barkley and Malone, just to start with. Well, if you're trying to win a championship in that particular era – that they were playing in yeah within their yeah god it's so tough because when malone was really getting to the finals it's a, a terrible era for the league yeah i so yeah i like dirk's peak
0: better than malone and barkley by a little bit that that all that offensive stuff we've been talking about yeah puts it over the top for me
1: well well. so i, I mean here's kind of a way to look at it right i mean carl malone is You know, if you asked people at the time, and that's not gospel necessarily, but Carl Malone is probably considered one of the four best players in the NBA for about like a seven year period in the nineties. And Dirk, yes, he was probably considered at that level, maybe in 06 and 07. And then maybe only after he wins the finals in 2011, is he considered at that level once more. He did.
0: So, yeah. Yeah. I see where you're going, but. Uh, he there were some of those years where I think Dirk played as well or maybe I mean hmm. if it's a if it's a longevity thing if it's the chunk of years it's possible Malone is more consistent relative to his era but Dirk had better you know the high-end talent that Dirk was going up against sometimes 94 95 doesn't have Jordan who are you thinking by the way in the 90s you have Jordan you have Akeem you have David Robinson You think, well, I mean,
1: if you, if you ask people at that time, I think probably only Jordan and Akeem would be considered, I mean, I guess there's a year where Barkley wins the MVP, you know, Malone is sort of just like, like there's a differing cast of characters around him every year, you know, Robinson wins the, the MVP in 95, but I think Malone is basically like the number four player in the NBA and then probably moves up to number two, uh, by 96, 97, 98, um. But and and you know maybe it's Barkley above him one year maybe it's Akeem when they're winning championships maybe it's David Robinson although you know he, he uh, had as many playoff failures as Malone did if not more so uh, who else is in is in that conversation at that time uh, you know maybe in '94 Pippen yep. yeah yeah Sha- Shaq in '98
0: Shaq. Shaq in '98 '95 he, he's injured in '96 '97 '98 regular season but Shaq was there. Pippen was there.
1: Yeah, but I think I mean I think people would have considered Malone better than Shaq in '98. I mean they swept the Lakers in '98, right?
0: Yeah, he, they Malone did terrible things to that Lakers team. Um, so I I've punted on the Malone Barkley question because I think even after talking it through again today, it's just sort of a it's sort of a toss up for me, and I I actually like leaning into that answer more because e- like even Dirk who I whose peak I like more. It's not like I can't come up with an argument that the other guys were better relative to their era in a certain year or something, but when it comes to Barkley and Malone, Nate, I- I'm like, I-, I don't know. I guess it depends on the team. That you need—they're so close to me in terms of top-level value. Yeah, I- I'm really not sure it makes a lot of sense to walk a hard line in the sand on one or the other.
1: I, I don't know. Do you have a preference? So, so here's the construct that I was going to mention. Those two guys did play on the same team once, which was the... The dream team. ...92 Olympic team. Are, are, are you going
0: Monte Carlo on me?
1: Maybe a little bit, but Barkley, pretty much everyone said he was the best player on that team. I thought it was also interesting that Jordan was, like, really inefficient on that team. Yeah, that, I
0: uh, I actually do look occasionally at international play because of the concept of, like, so many high-level players coming together. Right, so, right. so, you know, like the 90... I think it's the 94 team... Reggie Miller led the team in scoring, and his true shooting was like eighty percent, and it, yeah. and that always to me, all those guys, Ray Allen's, all those guys are going to feather into those teams really nicely and fit. The '92 team they were so much better. Yeah, I actually kind of look at the Monte Carlo practices where they play each other as yeah. a, as a better data point than like anything that happened in the qualifying in the tournament. Right, um, and in that case. You know, we got a little hearsay. We got a few clips from practice. We Got the coaches' accounts. Uh, I, I mean, in that setting, is is Charles Barkley going to come out looking slightly better than Carmelo in a five-on-five pickup game, given who their teammates were? Yeah, I, probably. I would think so, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah. Well, Bar- Barkley was just so much more of a singular force, too. Right. Go, where he just did these things without were just impossible to deal with athletically especially i mean that was for nba teams not to mention uh, these international teams at the time and also you can say hey that wasn't malone's peak malone's peak was uh, a few years later uh, i mean it's it is a little hard for me to believe that like he was better at 32 through 35 than he was at you know yeah 28 I, or whatever he was I, I, yeah i think if
0: anything he offset losses to kind of keep it in the same ballpark but some of those some of those early 90s seasons were Monster seasons for him,
1: yeah. So he, but he's not necessarily doing anything that really stands out. Whereas Barkley was during during that time. So I, I, again, like you, I, I struggle to take a position on this. I think ultimately, especially for the time, I thought Carl was a solid defender and Barkley sucked. So, and I think their offense, you can kind of go either way. To me, Malone is a little bit more portable with the jump shot as well more transition game. Barkley does have the offensive rebounding as far as the the portability, but to just be that bad defense, I mean, what does he play on two decent defenses in his whole career? Yeah, it's,
0: that's, that's, that, okay. I think if I had to make something that was a little more definitive, you've, you've kind of made me realize that I would go with Malone on more teams, I think, if I had to pick. So like, in other words, their peaks are basically a toss up to me, but I'm just guessing based on what we're talking through that, if it's 100 teams, I'm going to take Malone more than 50 times.
1: Yeah, I think Malone's more varied scoring game as well where it, neither of these guys are like great guys to just throw the ball to, but and Barkley is going to force more double teams than Malone is, but Malone can always get you that mid-ranger if you need it. That has some value as well.
0: Nate, are you ready for part 2 of our all-decade tournament?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you want to record it right now. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> in, with, in this
0: vocal condition,
1: yeah. No, uh, let's let's not do that. Let's take a little break. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. What you, What else you got going on? You want to tell people, you know, things you need to market and sell and
1: all that? Yeah, stuff. sure. We, Should they- so, uh, Danny Larue and I do the NBA cast, where one game a week, we invite you to sync your TV up with us and mute it and uh, listen to our commentary on the game. We take questions during commercials. New pod with John Hollinger the hollinger and duncan nba show that's a, a once a weeker take a look at some larger issues uh, around the league and then uh danny and i of course uh, do dunked on usually five days a week but a little bit less here with some of the holidays but uh that's your keep up with everything happening in the nba podcast A huge thanks to Nate for
0: coming on and doing that. Hope you enjoyed that. Just wanted to add a little more color to what he said there about the NBA cast at the end. That is an alternative broadcasting form where they provide commentary, uh, X's and O's observations, analytics, as they watch the game. So you watch the game, they watch the game, you sync up the time, and it's just an alternative broadcasting format that hopefully the league will embrace going forward. I'd love to play with something That like that myself one day. So you can catch that Nate Duncan NBA on Periscope or search for them on Twitch. They also sometimes stream it through on their Twitter, Nate and his co host Danny LaRue. Really exciting. Speaking of exciting, this is the second of the Great Debate series. Many more are planned. Some of them, the first one was solo, this one was with a guest. Let me know what you think. Uh, I will try to get guests where people are available and have the historical knowledge. But let me know what you think at LG35 on Twitter, ELGEE35 on Twitter. As always, a huge thanks to Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. If you're interested in more content, proprietary metrics Uh, we have post shows in the podcast, sneak previews for videos, all kinds of stuff over there, different options. If you check it out and you want to support the show, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That is it for this episode. I will talk to you in the next episode. And as always, I hope you are all having a great day. Did I do that right? Great day at the end. Wonderful day. Great day. No one really has a spectacular day, do they? Huh. I wonder if I should put these outtakes in.